Sonata, come on up. How many friends and family of Sonata are here today? Oh, fantastic. There's going to be a crowd. I want to invite all of you up here as well. This is just too much fun to pass up. So if you're a friend, come on up. Elders, if you have any elders out in the group, you guys coming up as well. Friends, family. And the uh, children, instead of a children's sermon, I'd like to invite all the children just to come and sit right here and watch what happens. In fact, if you've never seen a baptism and you want to see it up close and personal, this is a great crowd to hide in right here. So go ahead, make your way around over there where Mark is. And no, you stay here, Sonata. I'm ready to jump in. <laughs> hey, Mark. I'll give it right back to you. You hold that, you're going to need it. You guys want to uh, you guys want to have a seat? The young ones, the older ones, come on up here on the stage. That's right, slip on through there. Come on up here. Yes. We'll have the kids sit here and we'll have the adults come up. That way they can all see. <laughs> Baptism is uh, one of the great great moments in the, I think, the history of a church. I'm going to read a verse out of Romans because uh, Paul talks about this. He asks a very interesting question. Um, we all agree that when we sin or get into trouble, God's grace flows. It increases. So then he asks a question in Romans 6. Well, if that's the case, shouldn't we go on sinning so that grace may increase even more? And then he says, no, that's really not a good idea. We shouldn't do that. So then he says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Think about that. We were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. A little bit later on he says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And baptism is one of those wonderful moments where it symbolizes what's happened when a person has come to faith in Christ. So when we go down into the water, we, it symbolizes we've died to sin. When we come up out of the water, we've been resurrected to a new life in Christ. It's a great picture. Baptism is something that we do as individuals, and Sonata is going to be baptized because it symbolizes, I think, the journey to Christ, what we refer to as justification. Communion, by the way, is something we do as a whole community because it symbolizes our action together as a community of faith to remember what uh, God has done. So, Sonata, uh, tell us why you'd like to be baptized. Um, I first of all want to thank Jesus that he died on the cross for every one of us. <laughs> Amen. And that we may live. And I accept that. I claim it. I cling to it. And I, I've been waiting long enough to have to be baptized and feel like right now I want to die to myself. Um, I want to die to my sin. And I want to live my life all for Christ. I want Christ to live in me, set me on fire, and I want that fire to spread like a wildfire to all the people that he's going to send my way. Amen. Amen. This, in the first service, Haley Pfeiffer was baptized, sitting right here. 
And uh, one of the great, one of the great uh, joys of being a pastor is getting to watch people not only come to know the Lord, but throughout their journey, make faith their own. So when we met, we had some really good conversations, didn't we? about how faith, same with Haley, just in the way God does it is really amazing how faith becomes your own. You know what we're talking about, don't you? Out there, I see several of you smiling. So let's go baptize you. Let me take this. Would you set that behind you? After I baptize her, we will uh, stop and pray. And let me invite any of you that want to pray, anybody out there that wants to stand up and pray, pray, and uh, Mark will close us, close our time. All right? So not I have enjoyed getting to know you and all the conversations we've had. I've enjoyed watching your faith in uh, Jesus uh, be real. It is very real to you. I've seen it, the tears, the laughter, the private conversations. Based on that faith uh, in Jesus, based on your profession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Dead to sin, alive in Christ. Glad to keep a seat. <laughs> Amen. She's got her arms up praising Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Sonata. Thank you for the work that you have done in her life and her heart. Lord, uh, that truly is a miracle. One of the ways we know that you are very real is because we see changed lives. And hers is one of those. Thank you, God, for this moment in her life. So, Lord, we are grateful to you for faith that you have loved us enough to uh, come to us and to be among us and to die for us. And you set the example in baptism. Uh, you didn't do it for the same reasons we did, 
but you set the example. You, you showed that you were committed. You were in. And uh, you got the confirmation, the affirmation from the Father and the Holy Spirit in that time, also from John. And we now, as we're gathered here, we affirm and we confirm the uh, faith that we see and we experience inside of Sonata. God, thank you for that. Uh, fill her with great wisdom. Fill her with joy, with hope, with peace, love, patience, long-suffering, all the Spirit's gifts that you want to give in such abundance. Mm, yes. Thank you for her decision by faith today to come to join with the others through history who have followed you in baptism. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you people, go back to your seats. There's nothing left to see here. And the here. children. Oh, yeah, and kiddos, you guys can head out to Sunday school. Head on right out through that side door. There is water, if anybody else wants. Just saying. Just saying. Yeah. It's warm. It's not even... It, well, we pumped it straight out of Lake Dillon, but we have warmed it up since then. Let me start today by um, a caveat. Um, as you can probably tell, I'm fighting a little bit of a chest cold. Once a year or so, I get to sound like Rob Schmidt, a little bit lower, although I'm better looking than he is. So uh, we are in the middle of a series that we've entitled The Story We Find Ourselves In. Why is it important to obey? That's the question I think every Christian should wrestle with. Why is it important to obey these words here? Jesus said in John 14, whoever has my word, uh, commands and keeps them, this is the one who loves me. Somehow love is tied to obedience, but how is that? And why is that the case? Why is it important that your Christian character be Christian? What difference does it make? Or does it make a difference? Does it really make a difference if we live like believers or not like believers? Uh, I think most of you would answer that question yes, uh, but when I ask the question why, that's kind of a harder question to address, isn't it? Why is it important? Today we're going to explore a little bit of that. So we've started this whole journey of the story of God, the story that we find ourselves in as a church. We've been looking from creation to new creation. Now let me remind you, this Bible is pretty thick. It's complex. It's got lots of things in it. Those of you that are reading through the Bible this year with me, will, uh, you'll know what I mean when I say, uh, wow, it's very... Uh, there's a lot of stuff in here. Doesn't make doesn't all make sense to any of us. Uh, some of it we just scratch our head, we confuse and say, "What in the world does God mean here?" But it is the story. It is God's story. You've heard me say that when I explain what this book is about. If you're on an airplane and you're sitting next to somebody and you say, "Hey, that book you're reading, what's that about?" Oh, it's a mystery. It's a uh, 
Maybe it's a history of Western civilization. Maybe it's a textbook I'm taking for a class. They can tell you what it is, but they look at you and say, what's that book about? How do you answer that question? It's hard to answer the question so that everything in here fits into one idea. This is my thought on that. This book is the story of the one true living God who interacts with his creation in such a way that all of his creation will worship him alone as God. You can fit, I believe, every story underneath that idea that God is involved with his entire creation. So the first week we started this journey, we asked the question, what makes us unique as Christians? Well, we worship the one true living God, the God that we believe to be the one true God. We, we don't worship uh, Allah. We don't worship Buddha. No, we worship, we worship God, the Christian God. We believe he's the one true God. And then we move from there to what does it mean to be a caretaker of creation? And I argue there that we are caretakers of creation, that being environmentally sensitive and concerned about this earth, this creation, should be one of the pillars, one of the cornerstones, the heart of what we believe, because we believe this was a gift from the Lord for us. It's designed to, for our enjoyment, Paul argues, is designed to reveal God's nature to us. God created just simply because he wanted to. And he wanted us to just love all of creation. We'll never exhaust the end of creation. He loves it so much that he's going to recreate it, to create a new heaven and a new earth for us to reveal his glory. So therefore, as Christians, that should be a center point of what we believe, that we care about this. It's our home. He made it for us. And then last week we talked about being a blessing to the nations. Remember that? We looked back at Genesis, the story of Abraham in Genesis 12. And we went through the Bible and we looked at all the places that it talks about being a blessing to the nations. You're going to see some of that language again today, actually. Because that's God's heartbeat. His heartbeat is to reach all of the nations. And by the way, the fact that we're sitting here today is an answer to that promised Abraham. All the nations on earth will be blessed through you. Most of us here, the vast majority are not Jewish. And so God has fulfilled his promise. And we represent that. So today we're going to look at what does it mean to be redeemed for redemptive living. Now the caveat is, it's hard to tell the story from uh, creation to new creation, from Genesis 1 and 2 to Revelation 21 and 22, by only looking at one story. So I'm going to take you through several passages like we have all along, because that's how we grasp the story is by looking at these, these passages as we move on. So today I'm going to argue that we have been redeemed for redemptive living, or let me say it a different way. We have been redeemed so that we can be redemptive in the lives of others. Now, as is common in church and in Christianity, we like to use biblical terms, what we think of as uh, church language today because we get it right out of the Bible. The problem is, is that my, in my experience, very few people know how to define these words. So we use all kinds of language in the church and never really stop to grasp it. So the one of the things we're going to wrestle with today is, what on earth is redemption all about? And I use the story of gospel, I use that language to illustrate it. When I say gospel, many of you think Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. That is true. But the word is far bigger It's far grander than that. Gospel is the good news that God did not forget us. He loved us. We are his creation, and he is aggressively pursuing us. So the word gospel is used many different ways throughout the Bible. Paul says, uh, uh, I preach Jesus, son of David. That is the gospel that I preach. 
And then he talks about Jesus Christ dying on the cross. That's the gospel that I preach. And then he said in Galatians 3.8 that God made the gospel known ahead of time to Abraham. That is, that all the nations would be blessed through him. There's another aspect. So this idea of gospel, it's a very big word. It's basically the good news that God has not forgotten us. It finds its fullest expression in what Jesus did on the cross. But it's far bigger than that. The same with redemption. When we think of being redeemed or redemption, we usually think of it in terms of the cross, rightfully so, not criticizing that. That's good, but that's just the small, that's the core from which the concept of redemption flows out of. So we're going to have to do a little work today to say, what on earth is redemption? Well, to begin a journey, let's go back and take another look at Abraham. I argue that almost everything theologically starts in, the, in Genesis and begins to uh, Open up like a flower, begins to cascade like a waterfall, whatever image you want. As it moves from creation to new creation, we see all these ideas start in the beginning, and then they get broader and more beautiful and more wonderful, more personal as the Bible unfolds. So we're going to go back to Genesis, um, this time chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, it should be a Bible in your seat. I know many of you have it on your phone and tablets and smartphones and all those kinds of things. However you get there is fine with me. Genesis chapter 18. Now you may remember in Genesis 12, that's where God gave the basic promise to Abraham. Through you, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. But he repeats that phrase many times. We saw that last week. We're going to take a look at Genesis 18. Now the story that we're going to step into in Genesis 18 is there are three visitors who have visited Abraham. So he did what God said. He obeyed. And he uh, moved to this strange land, this new land. And then a a few years go by, and these three visitors, they visit with him. Uh, If you look in verse 10, you'll see something very interesting. One of the three visitors, who's called the Lord, see it? Capital L-O-R-D, all capital letters. In your Old Testament, just to help you understand how they use the English language, When you see Lord in all caps, that's referring to the divine name of God. We're not quite sure how to say his name. Uh, The most common way I've heard it is Yahweh, because we only have the consonants. We do not have the vowels that go with it. But it is the divine name of God. He only has one name, and that's it. Every other word is a title, like Adonai, God, all of that. But his name is Yahweh. So when you see Lord in all caps... You know, it's referring to the very personal God himself. He is present with us. So one of these three people is God himself. I believe that it's a pre-incarnate Jesus because John 1 tells us no one has seen God at any time. So anytime God appears in the Old Testament in the form of a human, I think it's Jesus. So these three are visiting him and they're having a conversation with him. And right smack in the middle of that, Look with me in verse 18. In fact, verse 17. Then the Lord, oh, here it is again, his name. So this is the the one true God said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. There it is. We repeat it again, don't we? God keeps reminding us over and over again that all the nations will be blessed because he loves us. When you come across a non-believer, somebody in a grocery store, somebody in a hair salon, up on the mountain, wherever you happen to come across them, you can be assured of two real simple truths. Number one, God loves them far more than you do. 
far deeper than you do. And number two, God has been at work in their life a lot longer than you've been in their life. You can always have confidence of that. He just loves this creation. And he's always moving in such a way to get people's attention. So there it is. Verse 19, For I have chosen him, that's Abraham, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. What a wonderful phrase, to keep the way of the Lord. That's another way of saying it is important that we obey. It's important that our Christian character matters. What we do in life, the choices we make are significant. So I have chosen him to, that his children, to teach his children to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Why? So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he promised him. Here's this very, very early idea. I want Abraham to obey because that's the primary means that I'm going to use to make myself known and to bless Abraham and fulfill my promise. He's going to make Abraham a blessing to all the nations, and it'll come through obedience. So our mission has to start with faith. That's, a, that's, that's what Abraham did. But not only faith, with obedience. Genesis 12 is the story, as we looked last week, of God coming to Abram. I think he was out probably looking in the stars, worshiping the stars. He's Chaldean, and God spoke. I don't know what it's like for the stars to begin to speak, but God approached Abraham in the language he understood, and he said, go. Abraham didn't question him. He got up and left, and he went. Now, we find out from Paul and James that Genesis 15 is the example of where he believed God. I'm not even sure he's a believer at this point. God spoke and said, go, and he went. And Genesis 15 is where he begins that journey of believing in him. So it does take faith, but it's far more important than that. It takes obedience as well. That's how God realizes his mission in the world. It's through what we do as a church. We'll come back to that. Our lives and our character matter. Now flip over to Deuteronomy, five books later to the right. And um, Deuteronomy chapter 10, we're standing now on the banks of the Jordan. They're about to cross into the promised land. And Abraham is once again reminding them of this law that God had given them. And he's giving them his final words. Uh, he has a lot of words, just the whole book. He gives, gives them his final words before they go into the promised land. Abraham is not going to cross over with them. And he's going to stay on this side, and the Lord is going to take him home because he sinned against the Lord. So he's reminding them of the law. Let me remind you of the law that God gave us, and here's what's important. In the middle of this, we have this wonderful little verse in chapter 10, verse 12. This is what is important, and this language is all throughout this book. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. And then verse 19, and you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. This is imagery and language that we see all throughout the Bible. When we get, by the time we get to the New Testament, the author of Hebrews, Paul, they describe us in terms of pilgrimage. And he says, take care of the foreigners because you were foreigners once yourself. Guess what? We're now foreigners. Paul says we are citizens of heaven. Hebrews says we're on a pilgrimage. This land, this home, this land is not our home. We're only passing through. We belong to the new creation. The moment God 
resurrected Jesus from the dead, he, made, he put a stake in the ground and said, this creation is good. I'm going to renew it, not replace it. Because Jesus represents that in his resurrected body. That's what happens to all of us. God loves this creation. He made it. Plenty of evidence, although it is marred by sin, to show that it is beautiful. It's the handiwork of God. And he's going to renew it for us and for his own glory. So right off the bat, he has this statement that Israel was commanded to obey and walk in the way of the Lord. There's that language again. What does it mean to walk in the way of the Lord? What does it mean to live as redeemed citizens? What does it mean to live redemptively? Well, first of all, we've got to ask the question of what does it mean to be redeemed? Can't explain what it, how you live that way unless you really understand the concept. The language of redemption appears in the Bible right at the point that God decides to take Israel out of Egypt. So turn back to Exodus chapter 6. This is the second place that the word occurs, but this is the one I want to start with in Exodus 6. Now you may remember the story. Um, many, many 400 years before, God had taken uh, this small band, started with Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery. You may remember the story, to the Egyptians, and so he ends up in Egypt. He's, uh, his brothers had sold him off because they were a little upset with him. He, he kept telling them these dreams and visions where he's better than they are. They have to bow down before him. They were just a little ticked. So they sold him into slavery, and he ends up in prison. He interprets the dreams of Pharaoh and gets elevated to the second position in the nation. Then because of the famine, God brings Jacob and all of his brothers down, and, uh, and there's 70 of them that end up in Egypt. All right, now, if you were God and you wanted to take this band of 70 that God had promised, I'm going to make you into a nation as numerous as the sand of the seashore, the stars in the sky, and I'm going to make you into this nation, and you are going to be the agent through which I bless the world. How would you do that? What would be your methodology, your strategy, the way in which you would protect this young group of 70? Well, he could have left them where they were, but guess what? All these little nations around them, they, they intermarried, and they slowly over time lost their ethnic identity. So God did something really brilliant. He put this little band of 70 right smack in the middle of the one superpower in the world. They would feed them. They would care for them. They had military strength to protect them. And guess what? They despised them because they were considered dirty. The Egyptians were clean, clean shaven. The Israelites were not. They were hairy. And so they despised them. They would not touch them. They wouldn't intermarry with them. They didn't even like them that much. So it was a brilliant brilliant thing that God did. Took this little 70, stuck it right smack in the middle of the one superpower who would take care of them and let them grow and thrive, but never intermarry, so they never lost their identity. And then he just kind of stepped back for 400 plus years and watched them grow. And they began to grow. And they began to grow, and they got more numerous and more numerous, so finally, 400 years later, the Egyptians said, hey, wait a minute, we're in danger here of being overrun by these people, so let's take them under control, and we will bring them under enforced slavery, which is what they did. They cried out to God. We looked at that. And God heard their cry and their groaning, and he came to rescue them. That's the story of the Exodus. But now look at these words that are used in chapter 6 of Exodus, verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh. There's that word, capital word. Whenever he uses that, He's reminding them that I am your personal God. 
Every nation had their gods, and he said, you belong to me, and I am your God. I am the one true God, by the way. There are no others, but I am, the, I am your God. So that's what he says in verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am your God. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you. There it is. All of a sudden, we have this concept of redemption enters the story. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know. Here's that language. It occurs all throughout the Bible. Then you will know. Then you will know that I am your God the one true God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And all the way through the ten plagues, all the way through those, he kept saying, I'm going to do this so that all of Egypt will know that I am the one true God. So the ten plagues just sim aren't simply plagues. The ten plagues, every one of them is an indictment, is a strike against one of the major gods of Egypt. Where one by one, he knocks down their gods. And guess what? They come to the conclusion your God is actually far more powerful than I go, our God is. And this language of redemption enters the story. When you turn over to Exodus 15, this is after they've been brought out and they've just crossed, the, the waters have been parted and the nation of Egypt, the army has been destroyed. So now we have the song of Moses and Miriam. Here's the next time this language of redemption occurs. It's in verse 13. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. You see it? In your unfailing love, you will lead the people that you have redeemed. They have now been redeemed. That's the implication here. They went in as a ragtag group of 70, and they come out as a redeemed nation. In both cases, it's clear that this concept of redemption is corporate. It refers to the nation. God asks them to do one thing, one thing only. Take the blood and put it on the doorpost. And they did it. Jesus said it only takes the faith of a mustard seed. They didn't know who this God was. They'd only heard the stories. They didn't have the Hebrew scriptures yet. They hadn't been written in the Old Testament. So they did what Moses said. The one true God said, just put blood on the doorpost. And they did. And he passed over. And that's where Passover comes from. Passed over their homes and protected them. So when they left, he had redeemed them. Okay? It's clearly corporate. But what does it mean to redeem? The people at this time understood it because it was very much a part of their culture. The basic core meaning of redemption is that someone else watches out for your best interests. In Israel, a person could act as a redeemer on behalf of a family member. We call that kinsman redeemer. Some of your translations even use that, like in Ruth and other places. A kinsman redeemer. In other words, I'm a family member and I'm going to redeem you. This was a person who took it upon themselves to act on behalf of someone else, especially if they've been wronged or were facing some danger. For instance, murder, Numbers 35. If, if a family member had died, you could bring a murderer to justice. You act as a redeemer to bring them to justice. We're not talking about vengeance. The code was very clear, the Mosaic Code. 
You couldn't just go get vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. So there's a very set of prescribed ideas in Numbers 35 of what that looks like, taking them to the court system. But I was going to act on behalf of my family member who had been murdered. Or another use of it is Leviticus 25, debt. Let's say that I had gotten myself in trouble financially. I did something stupid. Anybody here ever done that? Oh, good. In the first service, one person raised their hand. Now there's five of us <laughs> that have done something stupid. Okay, and so your only option is to sell the land that you have. That's your possession. You sell the land to pay off your debt. Maybe it's a gambling debt. Maybe you invested it improperly. Who knows? And so as a kinsman redeemer, as a redeemer, if you sold me the land, I could give it back to you. If, it wasn't, if I'm not the one you sold it to, I can go pay the price and relieve your debt. That's a redeemer. I'm going to pay the price for you and get your land back. Let's say that there's no, um, there's no kinsman that can afford that. Then after 50 years in the year of Jubilee, guess what? You get it back anyway. That's how important it is. So in the, in the whole concept of debt, you see how redemption works? Or there's a concept of family lineage, keeping a family member's name alive. So if my brother, for instance, dies, I would marry his wife in order to have children through her to keep his family name going. It's very important in the ancient Semitic world, the world of the Mediterranean. That's one of the ways they did it. So I would redeem his name by keeping it alive. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about. If you want to go home and read Ruth, you'll see that story. Boaz is a kinsman who rescues Ruth and keeps alive the family name. So when God redeems, it implies that we are family. It is personal. Because this word redeemer, kinsman redeemer, was used within the context of family. So God chose a word that they were very common, they understood, it meant a lot to them, to say, I'm going to redeem you. In other words, the implied message is, you were very important to me. This is a personal statement. You're part of the family. Get that? That's what this word means. It's not some abstract theological term. It's a very personal word. And that follows through all the way throughout the Bible. It's God's way of saying... I am prepared to do whatever it takes, pay whatever it costs to protect you, to defend you, and to liberate you. That's what it means. That's the heart of redemption. God is prepared to do whatever it takes, whatever it costs for his family. No other God in the ancient world said this. So when he said, I'm going to redeem you with my outstretched arm, that means we can rest. We can take a deep breath and we can rest because God is watching over us. He's going to do whatever it takes, pay whatever it costs to protect us. At its very heart, at the core, redemption means that God has come to help his people in their time of need. That's what it means. We have a redeeming God. He's come alongside to help us. Amen. He is faithful. So then we have the story of the Exodus. God leads Egypt, or Israel out of Egypt. And he does it, from, I believe, for four reasons. He communicates four reasons he wants to redeem. Four different spheres of the world of culture. One of those in the, is in the political realm. We're going to come back and see this in just a minute. 
He did it for political reasons. Why did he redeem? For political reasons. He takes on the government of Egypt. He brought the enslavement of an immigrant ethnic minority group to an end and granted them freedom because this uh, government had begun to treat them inappropriately and harshly and unfairly. So he did it for political reasons. He wanted to prove to the government of Egypt, you are not God. I am and you are not. By the way, is that a wonderful thing? I love it that he's God and I'm not. That means I can rest. But he didn't only do it for political reasons. He did it for economic reasons. He ended the exploitation of slave labor. He gave them land. He gave them an economic system of his own. When they left Egypt, they plundered the nation. The people were so excited to get rid of these pesky Jews that they gave them everything. Just get out of our midst. You've destroyed our belief system. We've lost our firstborn. You've ravaged the land. Your God has emptied us of everything. You've dis he's destroyed us. Get out. And by the way, here's all the, our gold and jewelry. Just leave us alone. So they left Egypt very wealthy. And under this new code, the Mosaic Code, are all the rules and what it means to have a very healthy economic system. All of a sudden, we see language appearing like, don't cheat your brother and sister. Don't do bribes. Don't have a scale that's a false scale. No, no, no. Be honest with one another. So he built into the Mosaic Law a very good set of rules on what it means to Take care of one another economically. But that's the, that's the first, political reasons, second reason, economic. But then he did it for social reasons. He placed a limitation on government power by doing this. The government was not free to do whatever they wanted. They simply weren't. David's a classic example. He took Bathsheba because he could. And God stepped in and said, it doesn't work that way. All of a sudden, we don't have kings and emperors and rulers that can do whatever they want. We see that's fleshed out in the New, the New Testament when Peter and John stand before the, the rulers of Israel and they say, you tell us, should we obey you or God? That means that there is a limitation on what the government should, should and can do. They're there for good. So he did it for social reasons. He established a basic respect for human life. And we've talked about that, how one of the unique features of Christianity is dignity of the human. Every other religion, you become something else other than who you are. Reincarnation, enlightenment, you name it. But in Christianity, you are who God made you to be, and that's a good thing. So God is making you an even better person. He's making me a better gem because of what Christ did on the cross. I get to be me for all of eternity, and I like being me. And I hope you like being you, because I like you being you. I don't want you to be me. I definitely don't want you to be Rob Strode. One's enough. I told Rob he's my foil. Every time he shows up, I'm going to pick on him. No, but you get the point, right? That, that God established this basic dignity and rights. He instilled a passion for social justice. Take care of the foreigners in your midst because you were a foreigner. Social justice. Take care of the widows and orphans, James says. Take care of the marginalized. So social justice. And the final reason he did it was for spiritual reasons. The Exodus was God's judgment on the gods of Egypt. And he brought Israel into a covenant relationship with himself. He destroyed the gods of Egypt. And that made them go, whoa. We really do serve the all-powerful God. And then he entered into a, a covenant with them. 
So the Exodus becomes a model that enables us to understand God's greater all-encompassing gospel. And what's the all-encompassing gospel? That God did not forget us. He loves us and he came back for us. And everything in this Bible about God's actions lead us in that direction. All right. So how is the cross redemptive? Let's just say a brief word about that. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. You're going to see a word here. It's kind of fun. Luke chapter 9. This is toward, even though it's fairly early in the book, it's toward the end of his life. We're on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. Christ is standing here with Moses and Elijah. And he says something very interesting. In fact, in verse 30, we're, on the, uh, uh, we're at the garden, and it's in the middle of the night. And verse 30, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure. And many of your Bibles have a little footnote there, Greek exodus. The Greek word is exodus. So he spoke about his exodus, which he was about to bring about, to, uh, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They were not talking about his departure through his death. They were talking about this grand idea of the exodus of the people of God from bondage to sin. We're talking about the final fulfillment here. Uh, I shouldn't say the final. The grandest part of the fulfillment to Abraham. All that the exodus represented, leading us out of slavery, we're now about to see with Jesus. His great act of redemption to fulfill God's promise to Abraham. Jesus' death and resurrection brings about an exodus from the slavery of sin, which is the true exodus. That's the true exodus. Instead of just slavery, we're slaves to sin. This language of uh, an imagery of redemption and exodus is found throughout the New Testament. Uh, this is not the only place that word occurs. Matthew 2, Joseph is told to take his son to Egypt, as predicted, make an exodus to Egypt, and then he would be brought back from Egypt. And he quotes Hosea 11, out of Egypt, I will call my son. That's what he called the nation of Israel, out of Egypt. So Jesus becomes the fulfillment of that. Luke 1, Zechariah's song, we looked at that at Christmas. It remembers God's covenant with Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and enable us to serve him without fear. The basic idea of redemption. He rescued us. So whenever you see the word saved us, you could put in the word rescue. The gospel represents God's grand rescue attempt from the bondage to sin. It's another way of saying it. In Colossians 1, Paul refers to the Exodus imagery to explain the triumph of God. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is one of the clearest places where we see this imagery of redemption. I mean, Exodus, being brought out of Exodus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, you are, this is a quote from Exodus 19, by the way, at the base of Mount Sinai. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's imagery right from the Exodus. But then he goes on. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see how this Exodus imagery, I've just said three or four places, it's all throughout the New Testament. The Exodus event in the Old Testament helps us understand what Jesus did on our behalf. It's God's way of preparing us to make sense of this crazy world. The entire Bible 
explains redemption as the act of God in which he stands up for us and protects and liberates us. So, that's what redemption is. We have a God who cares for us. He wants to redeem us. He wants to rescue us and protect us. And he wants to take good care of us because of his deep love. So I'm just going to quickly just read verses, not verses, just ideas. You're familiar with them all. So what does it mean to live redemptively with others? If God has redeemed us, we should live in the midst of a culture in such a way that we bring redemption to them. In other words, they're family. We care about them. It doesn't matter if they're Christian or not. There's one human race. And we should live in such a way that we care about them and we protect them and we watch out for them. See imagery behind priests? We are believer priests. We should care about the world. We're a sacrifice, Romans 12, living sacrifice. We should care about the world. We're redeemed. We should care about the world. So listen to these ideas. I'm just going to give you real quickly a bunch. We are called to rejoice. 1 Peter 2, we just read it. The Exodus should lead us to a lifestyle of praise and rejoicing and declaring God's wonderful work. 1 Peter 2, pray for those in authority. Kings, rulers, presidents, whether we like them or not. I don't care your political affiliation. We should pray for them. For peace, because we want this world to enjoy peace. That's one of the journeys that will bring them to Christ. Romans 13, pay our taxes. Even Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Contrary to popular opinion, taxes are not a bad thing. We have wonderful roads out here because of that. We have, a, we have a wonderful fire department. We have a wonderful police department because of taxes. When my first wife was ill, her medical bills were about 300000 a year. And I couldn't get insurance for her because she had a terminal illness. And I just praised God that the state came along because of you folks. And you paid your taxes. And they paid my medical bills. I praise God for that. So not everything about the tax system is bad. Don't just write it off, the evil. No, it's a good thing. When you pay your taxes on April 15th, do you file that return? Why don't you pause and treat it like an offering to the church and say, God, use these taxes well. Use it well. I'm the recipient of that. And by the way, thank you. Especially you older folks who were around back then paying taxes. Thank you. Um, Exodus 23, we're called to treat foreigners with kindness. By the way, all the ones I just told you were political. Remember the four reasons? Political was one. When we pay our taxes, we are, we are responding to the political system redemptively. Okay? We are called to treat foreigners with kindness. That's an economic consideration. We are called to be generous with those released from bondage. Deuteronomy 15. That's an economic impact. Economics are just as part of it. God cares about our economics. We are called to enact justice, mercy, and humility in Micah 6. That's social. Bringing dignity to others through enacting justice and mercy. Luke, uh, Matthew 6 and Luke 11, uh, uh, Jesus' prayer, we're called to forgive others, including their debts. That's economic. Luke 6, we are called to be merciful. That's social. John 15, we're called to leave others, to love others. I mean, that's social. Ephesians 4, we are called to show compassion. That's social. Romans 15, we're called to accept one another. That's social. John, 1 John 3, we're called to sacrifice for others. That's economic. You see these four reasons in the Exodus appearing now in our language? 
in the New Testament. You can take all these commands and put them in one of those four sections. We're called to show kindness to strangers, Hebrews 13. That's social. James 1, we're called to look after widows and orphans. That's economic. This is living redemptively in the lives of others. We have been redeemed by a God who cares about us. We should live the same way in the lives of this world. Don't criticize the world. Don't define yourselves by what you don't believe. Don't define yourselves by whether you like the, currently, uh, the current party in office. Define yourselves by what you do believe. And what do we believe? That we should live redemptively in the lives of the community around us. This is based on our own redemption. We should do whatever it takes, just like God did. Pay whatever cost is necessary to deliver others from bondage. This is redemptive living. That's what it means. We have been redeemed so that we can live redemptively in the lives of others. I'm going to invite the ushers up to take the offering and the the musicians to come lead us in worship. We live redemptively because of what God has done. This place is not our home. We're only passing through, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We talked last week about the offering. I went to 2 Corinthians 9 to argue two points about the offering. Number one is it is what keeps ministry alive. And so God uses us to care for each other but not only that, the offering, whatever you give is an expression, a very tangible expression of the gospel, your belief in the gospel. If you choose not to give for some reason, it doesn't hurt me. It hurts you. So let me just say how much I appreciate you, how much I love you. You guys are very sacrificial. Thank you for making it work here, paying our bills, giving us resources to do good things for the Lord giving us resources to live redemptively in Summit County. We're going to continue to process that down and say, what does it mean to live this way in Summit County? Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for this, this congregation sitting right here. Lord, you know I love them. Lord, bless them. Thank you for the work you've already done in their hearts to uh, decide what to give. I trust you and I trust them. Your Holy Spirit's very powerful and they're responsive to you. Thank you, Lord. And I pray that you would bless them because of the offering that they give us today. In Jesus' name, amen.